and welcome to the Kufai Middle East Briefing Podcast. I'm your host, Kasim Hafiz, and we have another fantastic episode lined up for you. And I know I say that all the time, or there's some variation on fantastic, amazing, incredible, you name it. But I generally believe that we have a great podcast and we speak to some really impressive and amazing people. So I stand by it. Hope you're all having a wonderful week, whatever you're doing, and praying that the rest of your week is truly blessed. So we have a really interesting guest on this week, uh, Vijayda Onyal from Indians for Israel. And I thought it was really important that we look at Israel's relationship and its relations beyond the normal sphere that we look at. The world is changing. It's getting a lot smaller. And India is the world's largest democracy, over a billion people. And it's a country which is rapidly evolving or developing into a global force. So it's something to have on our radar. It's also Israel branches out beyond its normal allies and trading partners. So Vijayda, I think, will give us a really impressive overview of that and also the development of Indian-Israel relations. So be sure to hang around for that later on in the episode. But next up is the news. Let's see what's going on in the Middle East. So over the weekend, the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, terrorists from Gaza fired around 45 rockets at southern Israel, causing damage in several Israeli communities near the border. In response, the IDF conducted some limited strikes on Hamas-controlled territory, and it also barred some fishing off the coast of Gaza in an attempt to protect its citizens. But Israel, earlier this week, has warned, has sent a message to Hamas, sending it a warning that the fire, the rocket fire has to stop. The terrorizing with civilians has to stop or it will deal with a stronger response. And ultimately, it's sad because in general, you probably didn't read about this. 45 rockets were fired at a civilian population in a short period of time. If that happened in most countries, if it happened here, if it happened in Europe, it would be front page news. But when it happens to Israel, it doesn't seem to make any headlines. It barely makes, has a mention in the papers. Um, you, I'm aging myself in the papers, wherever, in the news. Um, but this is the thing. When Israel responds, and if it responds stronger to renewed rocket fire, if it responds to protect its civilians, that will make headlines. And this is a huge problem because it skews the narrative. It isn't telling the full story. It's telling a particularly biased and skewed story. It's like being attacked by somebody, an unprovoked attack happening in while somebody's walking to the store. And then you only report on the part when the person being attacked fights back to defend themselves. This is exactly what we're seeing. So it's important that you are keeping up with the news in Israel because sadly it's not being done. It's not being reported 
and people are not hearing the full side of the story. They're not getting the full picture. They're getting a very limited picture. And sadly, that picture normally portrays Israel as the aggressor, which is just patently false. In more positive news, the Israel and UAE are signing their biggest deal yet. Dalek, an Israeli company, is going to sell a stake in the Tamar gas field for $1.1 billion. Israeli energy company is signing a memorandum of understanding with the Mubadala Petroleum. I may be pronouncing that wrong. If I am, my apologies, which is owned by the Abu Dhabi government. Um, it's incredible. You think about it just less than a year ago. Israel and the UAE had no relations. There was no no relations at all. And now they are signing these huge deals. There is cooperation in health and all these other facets. I mean, it just shows how incredible the Abraham Accords have been and how they are changing the Middle East for the better and bringing people together. So, I mean, this is just another example of that. In other news, uh, Iran has handed British Iranian charity worker Nazneen Zaghari Ratcliffe another jail sentence. She was arrested in Iran in 2016. She was detained at the airport after going to Iran on vacation to see her family with her young daughter. The Iranian government accused her of working with organizations attempting to overthrow the Iranian regime and she was later convicted and sentenced to five years in jail. Zagari Ratcliffe and her employee, the Thomson Reuters Foundation, have both repeatedly denied the espionage charges against her. And now Iran has decided to give her, give her another one-year jail sentence. She's not seen her husband or her child for a long time, and the Iranian government will not let her leave the country. I mean, it's truly horrific. The more you read about this, uh, like last February, her family said she, they believed that she had contracted COVID-19 in Evian prison, which is just outside Tehran. Uh, she's been transferred to a mental ward of the hospital in Tehran after she was being denied visits from her father. I mean, her her treatment has been absolutely horrific. She's suffering multiple health problems, mental health problems, yet Iran continues to detain her and provides no evidence. They've shown no tangible evidence for the accusations they've made, and they've, they're breaking up a family and using her as a bargaining chip. And look, it's horrific, but this is just another example of the regime in Tehran and what they stand for. So... Uh, look, my heart goes out to her family and just keep them in your prayers, please, because th this is someday she needs to be reunited with her family. She needs to be reunited with her daughter. And the way she's being treated by Iran is completely sickening and sadly not surprising. So that is the news roundup for this week. We'll be back after this quick message from Christians United for Israel. One of the biggest difficulties of the global pandemic has been being unable to travel as freely as we used to. But as the world recovers and travel opens back up, Kufi is doing its best to be the very first feet on the ground in the Holy Land. In November 2021, join Kufi for an unforgettable trip of a lifetime to Israel. 
Walk Where Jesus Walked, visit the United States Embassy, participate in an archaeological dig, and sail on the Sea of Galilee, plus much, much more. Learn more and see the full itinerary at www.kufi.org slash Israel. And welcome back. We have our interview guest lined up, so let me just tell you a little bit about him. Vijeta Onyal is a Indian writer based in Europe. He graduated from the Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi and has worked for more than 10 years in international organizations, including the German Foreign Office, the Goethe Institute, and the Humboldt Foundation. He is a regular contributor for the Legal Insurrection blog and a distinguished senior fellow of the Gatestone Institute. A renowned expert on Israel-India relations, Onyal is also the founder of Indians for Israel, the leading Indian pro-Israel group online. My name is Vijeta Onyal. I, am, uh, I founded a, a small initiative, uh, Indians for Israel, in 2012, around that time. And in the course of uh, years, we have uh, grown in strength. We, uh, it is a platform on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and all the other places where we can offer a platform for Indians who want to express their solidarity for the state of Israel and Indian community and Indian diaspora to connect with the Jewish diaspora abroad. So, so it's, it's a kind of, we try to build bridges between the two uh, nations and the two great cultures. So what, I guess, so what for you personally was the, the drive to establish Indians for Israel? Because look, in general terms, like I work for Christians United for Israel, the Christian community is known to be supportive of Israel. You have global Jewish communities on general are known to be supportive of Israel. Indians for Israel... It's not really what you expect, you know. It, it, it was different. It, it, was, it was a long time coming. But let me uh, point, my personal motivations were slightly different. I came to Germany in 2010 as an immigrant. And uh, before that, I studied German uh, culture and history, and I was very sensitive to what happened during the uh, Nazi regime and the Holocaust. It was very much present in, as far as my education was concerned. So in 2010, I came to Germany, and around 2012, during Gaza crisis, I was in Cologne in a city, and I saw what kind of uh, views the migrant young men had about Israel. And I heard things that you would not say in polite society in Germany, and they were being said, and uh, people, the larger society was tending to ignore it, saying, oh, they're just immigrants, you know, they don't know better or something like that. But being, being an immigrant myself, I thought I needed to take a stand. And uh, for me, uh, what I started was is writing a small diary sort of blog online, uh, which got certain attention from people of my community. And then uh, from there, I went to Twitter and Facebook. So one thing led to another. And the kind of support I got made me... Uh, do more. So, so that, that was a kind of one trigger that, that triggered me into that direction. And the kind of support I've, I found within my community, I think, uh, showed me that, that I was on the right path and I was talking about things that, that were hitting the nerve in my own So path. there's an interesting point that you raise, which I, I want to touch on. So you talk about coming to Germany as an immigrant and how wider society looked away or excused anti-Semitism. And it's really interesting because it's similar in the UK where I grew up where you would hear awful things said, anti-Semitic things said, 
but there was almost this acceptance from wider society where if you had somebody who was let's be very direct if you had someone who was white and british at the time and said similar things it would not be acceptable rightly so but there was this almost people from my community were excused a lot of this anti-semitism and bigotry why do you think that is one quick from my mind is a racism of low expectations i mean that that's that's one uh, way of looking they don't know better or you know just just uh, don't take them seriously uh, secondly is, is is the is the overall uh, uh, thing because i think certain segments think they can't say it let the other people say it and that's okay so i think it's 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 it's, it's comp- combination of certain things but i think one thing is i think as an immigrant i think i expect Uh, to be treated equal so i expect also to have a equal standard of what is done of of how one conducts himself so why should immigrants be held uh, to a lower standard i think that's 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 unacceptable so uh, that that was uh, that would be my understanding yes one last point i want to ask about that i'd like to get your opinion do you think because i've i've talked about this in the past Do you think it makes it more acceptable almost when you have a an immigrant community who are perpetuating perpetuating anti-semitism it then makes it okay for wider society to kind of jump on that kind of train because they're almost like well look they again being very frank they're brown so they can't be anti-semitic or they can't be racist so it's okay for us to say it too yes i think that that that's one part of it i think as i said in germany in certain segments uh, uh, let's say on the fringe which might be a, a big fringe 10 to 10 15% people who thinks in that way and when the migrants express them they uh, somehow feel legitimized in their own thinking and uh, whatever the motivations i think everyone is responsible for his own uh, own conduct so i think uh, uh, if whoever acts in a certain way should be made accountable and uh, that's uh, uh, my way of uh, looking at okay so i'm going to ask you a very frank um question uh, pivoting slightly there are people who are critics of the india israel friendship uh, alliance relationship whatever you want to call it many from the country of my family and my own heritage pakistan who believe that that friendship is motivated by an anti-muslim sentiment and look you know as well as anyone we do love a great conspiracy theory in south asia so look can you speak to this is there any truth in this uh, the floor is yours yes uh, yes yeah, it's a very straight question and i think it deserves a, a, a straight answer Uh, first thing uh, i think about my own motivation if i was uh, uh, if that would have motivated me i should have founded hindus for israel or something more similar on those lines uh, i created indians for israel because i think i wanted to offer a platform for all indians uh, personally i'm a secular hindu so i don't have uh, uh, religion motivating me and i want people who are indians who grew up in my culture who are part of what i have been or i in diaspora Uh, should have a platform and i think that 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 was the motivation which led me to start so uh, that's that's my aspect the secondly is the fringe aspect of it there there are people i cannot control what motivations people have for what they're saying but as far as my, when the when i join or i join other people or i share platform 
then I make sure that they know what are the reasons for me to stand with Israel and what are the reasons for our initiative to be out there. So I think uh, when there are fringe elements who are trying to deviate conversation to somewhere else, I think it's responsibility for uh, influencers, whatever you can say, like, like us, to make sure that the conversation is brought back to the real issue. And uh, there are, if, if they want to express their own uh, uh, whatever... Uh, ideas or, or prejudices or whatever you might call they have they they should take another platform not ours so, so that's 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 one way of dealing with it <coughs> sorry but when when you talk about conspiracy theories i think i i, I uh, whenever i'm abroad uh, or whenever i travel around i always meet pakistani people and we share a culture we, we share a, a lot of things more than we would like to admit and often, if, if conversation pivots on politics and Israel comes up, I think the, the feeling is, I think, people in, in, in our part of the world, India or Pakistan, think everything happens in the world because, because some, somebody wants to do something to us. Well, it, we are not that important. We are, we are, India, even at best, is a regional power. I mean, there is, there is no interest whatsoever for Israel, which is uh, miles, thousands of miles, uh, thousands of kilometers on the other side, to have any regional interest whatsoever. So, so there is no conspiracy of Hindus and Jews coming together to do any nefarious thing. And, and I think even if it did, I mean, I can't imagine a room full of Indians and Hindus agreeing on anything. I mean, so, uh, so I, I think that that fear, I think if somebody has, I can uh, try to, uh, you know, uh, that's, not, that's not the case. I, I appreciate when you said about, it's so true, like, with so many Pakistanis, I just want to go, look, guys, it's not always about you. You know, like people aren't plotting to like bring about the downfall of this small country in South Asia who has plenty of our own issues. <laughs> you know, you're not on everyone's radar. So something which is really interesting to me, and maybe it's my own kind of cultural perception well, of growing up in the UK, where I've seen it from a particular lens. But speaking at campuses, both in the UK and North America, I've noticed that there are many South, many in the South Asian diaspora, not just Pakistanis, um, or not just Pakistani Muslims, because that's the perception. It's like, oh, you don't like Israel? You know, it's it's either the leftists or the Muslims, and that's kind of it. Um, but there, there are a lot in the South Asian diaspora who have this hostility towards Israel. Like, why do you think that is? And like you said, like Israel is like 2000 plus miles away from South Asia. It's a strange, it's a strange focus to have given the problems in South Asia itself. When you're talking about universities, even Indian universities or, or, or universities abroad, you're talking about a segment of Indian society, which is privileged to go into those institutions. If, if you're talking about Indians in US in, in colleges, they're, they're they are the, the, the cream de la cream. They're, they're the best. So people who are so privileged and have everything, who are, in, in, if, you, if you talk about Indian elite, who are, who are to a great extent part of the problem they have, we have in our own country, to, to lecture other people, I think that, that's height of hypocrisy. And, and, and when, I, when I, 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 I meet these people all over the place, and, and the... The, the thing is that there are certain things going on. First is many Indians in those uh, uh, campuses are trying to fit in 
and, and trying to be the intellectuals they would like to be and trying to be recognized. And it is a part of the package deal nowadays on the campuses. You can be a social justice warrior, then you get all these kinds of things. You can, you know, it's like an IKEA thing. You can, you can, you can join it together. And uh, anti-Israel, BDS, you know, all these things. These are part of the package. And and if you if you uh, do those things, those virtue signaling, you become part of the uh, scene. So I think that that I I don't think there is any deep conviction as far as Indians on those campuses are because there are no grievances. And if they have social issues, uh, I as an Indian can point out that there if if they want to go be go after something, you know. There are issues I can tell them they should just be focusing on within their com- own community. So um, that's that's how I would say. But when you say is it, the, the, the BDS movement or campus, you'll see a lot of Indians you know, dominating those scenes, and I think they are they are the most privileged of our society. So uh, being a blue collar person for myself, I, I have little uh, uh, respect for that elite in that sense. So. I think maybe a, a few weeks ago now, I posted on social media a patch I had made, which was half the Israeli flag and half the Pakistani flag. And people lost their mind. It was, I mean, it was incredible to see just from a people's reaction, especially people from Pakistan. And the irony of it is, because you talk about hypocrisy, that the, their issue or their grievance that they claim is because of the way that the Israelis are treating the Palestinians, which, look, if we drill down, it's, it's, most of it, all of it is essentially myths and, and and falsifications. But but that was their main grievance. And then I asked, okay, that's fine. Okay, let, let's take that. But you realize that Pakistan's closest ally is China. If your issue is how Muslims are being treated by surely you know like there are plenty of you go i remember when i went to pakistan it's been a long time but there'd be these huge signs you know pakistan china bye bye like pakistan and china are brothers it's like okay so it and if you remember the slogan indians had in 62 hindi chini bye bye that that didn't end well for us that's true that's that's not a that's not a good sign if you're seeing that in street that's very true um so, uh, close to my final question. This has been a fascinating discussion, I've got to say. Um, so, how do you envision the future of India-Israel relations? This is a bit of a broad question. So, that's one part. And the role that Israel could play in the wider region, given your knowledge of the region. Uh, say we see a Abraham Accords-type change in the region. Because in South Asia, there's not many countries who actually recognize Israel. You know, Afghanistan... Pakistan, Bangladesh. <laughs> so, so I guess it's two pronged. One, in terms of the India-Israel relationship, and two, if we do see greater recognition of Israel in the region, what kind of impact could that have? Uh, India-Israel relations uh, going forward. I think a lot of media focus has been on Mr. Modi's uh, hands-on diplomacy, the way you, the relationship has been with Mr. And that's, that's, that's a great thing in itself. But I think if you see the trajectory I talked about post-Cold Cold War, regardless of which government uh, comes to power, Indian foreign policy has been consistent as far as they're developing ties with Israel in innovation and defense, and, and there's been a lot of economic exchange. 
and there there is uh, coming to the negative part there are lots to be desired when it comes to india's uh, uh, stance india takes at international fora united nations now india has been uh, consistently voting against israel not as much as it did before but still uh, india is a reliable country to vote against israel if it's in any un forum so i think uh, the the kind of diplomacy india has taken uh, yes to uh, economic uh, uh, but as far as diplomacy is concerned we are still have our cold war uh, uh, reflexes that we have i think that this uh, uh, will uh, this is the way that it has been going on for 20 25 years so for for this to change i think uh, there has to be a change uh, in thinking uh, as far as india's position in international uh, uh, arena is concerned so i as far as india's uh, relationship economic trade defense is going to go it's going to grow regardless of who comes to power and, and in, because if if mr modi's uh, hands on diplomacy has not changed india's stance at the un or not much changed it i don't see if any other government comes this changing anywhere i mean this this uh, uh, the relationship as far as defense was concerned were built up under the congress government uh, the left wing uh, socialist government so i don't think i think this is going to continue uh, in that direction i think and uh, if if it if things go the way they are and secondly you talked about the region i think in india if you see in the social uh, in the south asia i would say uh, bhutan nepal have very good relationship with israel bangladesh and pakistan uh, are uh, two countries which are holding up and uh, if, if there has there is opening in in in, in a greater part of the middle east i think that is bound to uh, uh, affect the region's thinking the leadership in bangladesh and pakistan would uh, think uh, their stance they they would they like to be more arab than the arabs themselves and uh, so uh, as far as those are concerned these are complex uh, uh, questions for which i can't uh, uh, really give an honest answer but i think if that changes i think uh, water uh, resources are, are one of our pressing issue in south asia that needs to be addressed and israel can help us in in, in that way agriculture that's that's one thing uh, arid how we can produce israel has the same kind of dry arid climate and still they can produce uh, and export so so i think these things agriculture and water i think these are the technologies that we Uh, in south asia can benefit from israel so uh, if if that that's how i would see no, for sure that's interesting um is there anything else you would like to tell our listeners or any final message or anything no i would uh, take this opportunity to thank um, our christian friends uh, of india in india who who are also very connected to your uh, organization who are very active in our community i think Uh, they are one of the most enthusiastic very loving very kind and very encouraging people in my my uh, own social media community so i think i would extend my thanks to them and uh, uh, i encourage more debate more uh, 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 input from them so so that that's uh, so we can uh, uh, move forward so that 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 be my message and if anyone wants to keep up with what indians for israel are doing what is the best way to they are primarily a social media initiative so so you can if you're on twitter or facebook you can join us on 
uh, Indians for Israel. It's Indians Digit for Israel uh, on Twitter handle. You can uh, follow me on Twitter and uh, Indians for Israel. You can also look up on Facebook. So, uh, or you can uh, Google my name and join me on uh, Facebook and social media and uh, uh, be part of the conversation. Help us interact with us. So that that's that's the best thing people can do for us. Okay, excellent, Vijayda. Thank you so much for your time. It's great to catch up with you and great speaking to you. Um, and the last time we were together was in Jerusalem, so I guess next year in Jerusalem <laughs> would be the hope. Yes, let's let's hope next year Jerusalem. Let's and thank you. And uh, I guess this is a conversation we'll carry on, and a lot of things are happening in the region and in India-Israel relations. So uh, I'm always welcome to interact with you and talk to the audience. No, definitely, we definitely appreciate it, and we definitely appreciate your perspective. It's it's one that I think isn't really explored in the U.S. Um, as you know the global it's shifting there, there's such a shift globally um and and definitely towards asia the current administration have definitely signaled that they want to reprioritize asia so i think within that the india is going to be essential and the india israel relationship in terms of the united states is going to be a, a key factor in that so i'm sure this will be a conversation that we will pick up at some point in the future all right, take care. I'll speak to you soon. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Once again, that was Vajeda Onyal, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation that we had. Uh, so I just realized, listening to this after, that we actually met in 2017. Not 2007. Um, so we met a few years ago in Jerusalem at a conference when we were being interviewed. So, yeah, I just picked up on that because I thought, hmm, I went to Israel for the first time in 2007. So 2017, but with COVID lockdowns and it's been a few years since we've been to Israel, it probably feels a lot longer. But that was Vijayda Onyal. I really appreciated him taking the time to speak to us and on a topic that me personally, I didn't really know much about. The evolution of India-Israel relations is something that has been out of my focus and not in my sphere of reading so i really appreciate him enlightening me and hopefully some of our listeners with some new information and be sure to to follow him on social media and see what he's up to and what indians for israel are doing i'm gonna now hand it over to my colleague karina who has some biblical inspiration for us thanks kasim uh you know during the course of you guys' conversation, uh, I, I just kept thinking that this organization, Indians for Israel, it really presents a striking picture of the unity that God intends for his people. You know, even before the cross, God's character as revealed in scripture, it's always been such that he does not show partiality. And his heart has always been for the nations to know him, not just Israel. And the book of Jonah illustrates that, you know, God's compassion is extended even towards wicked nations and wicked people, as well as uh, people like Jonah who are piously self-righteous. And so we see throughout scripture, what, what I'm getting at is, is that God's aim has always been for his 
diverse people to be unified in worship of the one true God. And that's something that's going to be fully realized in the eternal state. In the book of Revelation, we get just a glimpse of the glorious future that awaits the church. And it's one in which all tribes, all tongues, and all nations will gather to worship God as one body. And so although people may not be able to be perfectly unified in this life, not even Christians and, um, You can visit any church anywhere if you want to fact check me on that. But nonetheless, God expects the church to reflect the perfect unity that he enjoys in himself as a triune God increasingly and increasingly until Jesus comes back. And so as I listen to you guys' conversation, especially in light of this tense time for our world and for our nation specifically on the issue of race relations, I just started thinking that the book of Galatians has an important message for us on this topic of unity and diversity in the body of Christ. And it also has kind of a specific relevance for us as Christian Zionists, um, as we'll see. So I just wanted to look very briefly at a at a text of scripture, just one verse that's often used to support what is called replacement theology. And if you're listening and you've been around Kufi for any period of time, you have probably heard this term tossed around um, and you may even know its definition by heart. But I'll just refresh your memory. Replacement theology. It's basically the teaching that the church has superseded Israel. And so uh, this view sees God's literal promises to Israel as having been transferred spiritually to the church, which is made up of both believing Jews and Gentiles. So. In other words, Israel as an ethnic national identity loses its significance in the plan of God, and it has been replaced, or some might say fulfilled, with the church. So proponents of replacement theology often point to Galatians 3.28 to support their claim that the church has replaced Israel. And I want to just put out there that this is just one among many theological principles that they draw from a certain framework um, and brings them to this conclusion. So I don't want to caricature their position as being based on this one text of scripture. That's just a disclaimer. There is more to their theological position than this one passage, but it is one that they use often. So anyway, the verse says, Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So often this text is cited by replacement theologians to demonstrate that the distinctions uh, that were there between Jews and Gentiles before the cross are now abrogated through Christ and the church, which is made up of both believing Jews and Gentiles, is the new spiritual Israel, which inherits the promises made to Abraham in a spiritual sense. So they, they point to the truth that Paul expresses elsewhere in Ephesians 2 and Jesus's teaching highlights. It is true uh, what they say initially, which is that Jesus's coming did shatter the formerly exclusive nature of God's covenants with Israel, uh, meaning that Jesus's coming brought Gentiles into the covenants with Israel, into the fold of God. This is true. But the conclusion that they that they come to replacement theologians, that is, is that as a result of Gentiles being included in God's covenant with Israel, Israel as an ethnic national identity has lost its unique significance in God's plan. And and they say all believers, regardless of race, have become one spiritual Israel. 
So I point this out because even just a cursory look, uh, as we're doing now, at this text in its context, and especially in the wider context of the book of Galatians, kind of shows you that something's off with this interpretation of verse 28. It's it's just misguided. Uh, after all, if Paul means that there is no distinction between Jews and Gentiles in the church anymore, does Paul also mean that people are no longer recognized as male or female in the church anymore? Sounds a little weird. Does he mean that social class is no longer relevant within the church? Of course not. So the passage is not emphasizing that the church is the new spiritual Israel or that Jews and Gentiles lose their distinction when they come to faith in Christ. Paul is, is saying that in Christ, there are no more dividing barriers between people of different races, social classes, or genders, meaning that in Christ, we are all spiritually equal, and we are supposed to be one with each other as we are one with him. So while this text does not teach replacement theology, <laughs> I think we could all agree about that, it does remind us that within the body of Christ, there should be unity because we are all one in Christ. There should be unity, not divisiveness. We're all playing on the same team. But um, although we are spiritual equals with other believers, we're still called to sacrifice our own desires to serve others because this is what Jesus did. And so that spiritual equality does not take away um, distinct functions and our purpose, which is to serve one another as believers in the same body. We're supposed to seek each other's good. And so as I'm thinking about diversity and unity uh, in the body of Christ, it just makes me wonder if the church understood this. And if I understood this, if you understood this, if we grasped it in its fullness, just can you imagine the ramifications? Um, so those of you listening, uh, all that to say, you're reflecting the mutual respect and love that Paul encourages believers in Christ to have toward the Jewish people. In Romans 9 through 11, he makes it clear that the Christians should have that, um, that attitude of mutual respect and love towards the Jewish people. So I'm just encouraging those of you listening to continue standing with Israel and the Jewish people, to be united on behalf of Israel, uh, but also to seek unity with other believers in Christ as well, those in your immediate spheres of influence, because that's what we're called to do at the end of the day. And that is how we're going to magnify God's name in the world. Wow. Thank you for that, Karina. I got that, at, I think, just under eight minutes, maybe less than eight minutes, seven minutes. But you covered a lot of great information in a short space of time. So thank you so much for that. I mean, in breaking down replacement theology and, and the role and, you know, really unpacking these Bible verses which are taken out of context. And I think that's important when we read the Bible. To take just one line of one verse, you can, sadly, people turn it into whatever they want it to be, but it's important to read the before and the after, the verse before, the verse after, get the context. All these things are incredibly important and help us connect better with the Word of God. We will be right back after this quick word from Kufi. So I'll see you in a second. Do you want to grow in your knowledge of Israel and God's word, plus grow closer to God at the same time? Kufi has the resource for you. Launched at the beginning of this year, Kufi's Word of the Week is a weekly devotional sent to your email inbox that will encourage you, teach you, and give you ideas to apply God's word to your life. To sign up, visit www.kufi.org slash devotionals.
And welcome back. Uh, so once again, I want to thank Karina, Vijeda, for all the people who are on today's show. Very inspiring, very important messages from both. And that's all we have time for for this week. Thank you once again for joining us. We really do appreciate you joining us, listening. Please share this with your friends, family, anyone who you think may be interested. Leave us a review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you listen to your podcasts. And if you have any questions, please be in touch. Have a great week. God bless. And until next time, this is Kasim Hafiz signing out for the Kufi Middle East Briefing.